Lesson 4 for July 19 to 25, Salvation. Sabbath afternoon, July 19. Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we open your word again this week, and as we do so, we pray that your Holy Spirit will guide us. As we look at the topic of salvation, we pray that it may be something real for us, not just something that's theologically correct, but something which is part of our lives. Bless us now, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Our memory text this week is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Let's read that again. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Death, we often say, is just part of life. No, death is the negation of life, not part of it. Yet, so used to death, we mislabel it, calling it the opposite of what it really is. However we understand it, one point is certain. Without divine help, eternal death would be the fate of us all. Fortunately, that help has come. God, in his infinite love, offers us salvation through Christ. When the angel announced the birth of the Messiah, he named him Jesus, from a Hebrew word that means salvation. For as it says in Matthew 1.21, he will save his people from their sins. This week, we will consider Jesus' saving work. First, our attention will focus on the basis of our salvation, and later on the results of it. The Bible is clear. We have only two choices regarding our sins. Either we pay for our sins in the lake of fire, or we accept Christ's payment for them on the cross. As we review the generous gift of God's grace through Christ, let us once again humbly renew our faith in Jesus as our personal Saviour. Sunday, July 20, Salvation is a Gift from God. Question. In John chapter 3, verse 16, two verbs are used to describe what God did for our salvation. How do these verbs relate to each other? What do they reveal regarding the origin of our salvation? Let's read John 3.16 again. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The English verb to love, especially the casual way it is often used today, is totally inadequate to express the depth of solicitous interest expressed by the Greek verb agapeo, to love. In the New Testament, this term and its related noun agape, love, reveal God's deep and constant love toward his creatures, who are completely unworthy of this love. Love is the preeminent attribute of God's character. He not only loves us, but also he is love, as it says in 1 John 4.8. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. God's love is not an impulse based on his feelings or preferences. 
His love is not selective, nor does it depend on what we do. God loves the world, that is, all human beings, including those who do not love him. True love is known by the actions it generates. Sometimes, as human beings, we may say we love someone, while our actions demonstrate the opposite. 1 John 3, verses 17 and 18 reads, But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. The same does not occur with God. His love is reflected in his actions. Out of love, he gave his only begotten Son for our salvation. In so doing, God gave us all he had, which is himself. Question. Read Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 14. What does this story teach us about what our attitude toward God and his grace should be. Also he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for every one who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. We have probably read this parable so many times that we are not surprised by Jesus' verdict. I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. However, those who heard Jesus when he pronounced the verdict must have been astonished. Wasn't this an unjust outcome? Yes, it was completely undeserved. That is the way salvation is. It is a gift from God. Gifts are not earned, they are simply accepted. We cannot buy salvation, we can only receive it. Although Jesus never used the term grace, he clearly taught that salvation is by grace, and grace is being given that you don't deserve. So to finish the day, if God gave you what you deserved, what would it be, and why? Monday, July 21, Salvation, God's Initiative A simple reading of the Gospels shows that we owe our salvation entirely to God. Jesus did not come to this world because we invited him, but because the Father, out of love for us, sent him. The Father's initiative is confirmed by Christ's frequent use of the phrase, He who sent me, and the Father who sent me. Let's just check some of those in 
John chapter 7, verse 28, Then Jesus cried out as he taught in the temple, saying, You both know me, and you know where I am from, and I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. And John 8, verse 29, And he who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please him. And John 12:49. For I have not spoken of my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command, what I should say and what I should speak. Question. What else does the Father do for our salvation according to John 6.44? No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. In spite of the fact that we as sinners and did not love God, He loved us and provided the means for our salvation to be forgiven through His Son, as we read in 1 John 4.10. In this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. This wondrous love is what draws us toward Him. Not only is the Father involved, but the Son also has a very active role in our salvation. He came with a definite mission, as we read in Luke 19.10, The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Whenever we contemplate Him lifted up from the earth, He draws us to Himself, as we read in John 12.32, And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to Myself. Question. How far is the Lord willing to go in his efforts to save us? Luke 15, verses 3 to 10. So he spoke this parable to them, saying, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And, when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing, and when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbours, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine just persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbours together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I lost. Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. These twin parables show that God is not waiting passively for us to come to Him, but actively seeks us out. We have a seeking God. It does not matter if we are astray, far away in dangerous place, or even lost at home. The Lord will seek us untiringly until he finds us. Ellen White writes in Christ Object Lessons, page 188, No sooner does the sheep go astray than the shepherd is filled with grief and anxiety. He counts and recounts the flock. When he is sure that one sheep is lost, he slumbers not. He leaves the ninety and nine within the fold and goes in search of the straying sheep. The darker and more tempestuous the night, and the more perilous the way, 
the greater is the shepherd's anxiety and the more earnest his search. He makes every effort to find that one lost sheep. With what relief he hears in the distance its first faint cry. Following the sound, he climbs the steepest heights. He goes to the very edge of the precipice at the risk of his own life. Thus he searches, while the cry, growing fainter, tells him that his sheep is ready to die. At last his effort is rewarded. The lost is found. Tuesday, July 22, The Required Death John the Baptist described Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world in John 1.29. This image was easy for any Israelite familiar with the sacrifices offered in the temple and the sacred history recorded in the Old Testament to understand. Abraham had revealed his faith that God will provide for himself the Lamb for a burnt offering, and the Lord did provide the animal to be sacrificed in the place of Isaac in Genesis chapter 22. In Egypt, a lamb was slain for the Israelites as a symbol of their divine deliverance from the bondage of sin in Exodus chapter 12. Later, when the sanctuary service was established, two lambs were to be sacrificed on the altar each day continuously, one in the morning and the other at twilight in Exodus 29. All these sacrifices were symbols of the coming Messiah, who was led as a lamb to the slaughter, because the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, Isaiah 53, verses 6 and 7. Therefore, by introducing Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world in John 1.29, John the Baptist was revealing the vicarious nature of Christ's atoning death. During his ministry, Jesus repeatedly announced his death, even though it was hard for the disciples to understand why he had to die. Matthew 16.22 is an example. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. Gradually, Jesus explained the great purpose of his death. Question. What illustrations did Jesus use to indicate that he was going to die as a substitute for us? Well, our first text for this is Matthew 20, verse 28. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. And John chapter 10, verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends, John 15.13. This holds true, even if they do not understand or accept that sacrifice. On the cross, Jesus shed his blood for many for the remission of sins, Matthew 26.28. It is important to notice that Jesus died voluntarily. As the Father gave his one and only Son, so the Son gave his own life to redeem the human race. Nobody forced him to do so. No one takes it, my life he's talking about, from me, but I lay it down of myself, declared Jesus in John 10.18. 
Even Caiaphas, who openly rejected Jesus and led the plot to kill him, involuntarily recognized Jesus' substitutionary death in John 11, verses 49 to 51. And one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and not that the whole nation should perish. Now this he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. So to finish today, think of how much ingratitude humans have toward God and what he has given us in Christ. How can we make sure we don't fall into that trap? Why is this so easy to do, especially when we are going through difficult times? Wednesday, July 23, Free from Sin Without Christ, we were slaves of sin, slaves to the evil impulses of our fallen human nature. We lived in a self-centered way, pleasing ourselves instead of living to the glory of God. The unavoidable result of this spiritual slavery was death, because the wages of sin is death. But Jesus came to proclaim liberty to the captives, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, Luke 4.18. These aren't literal captives, but spiritual prisoners of Satan. Let's check in Mark chapter 5, verses 1 to 20. Then they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gadarenes, and when he had come out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit who had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one could bind him, not even with chains, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been pulled apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces. Neither could any one tame him, and always, night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying out and cutting himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and worshipped him, and he cried out with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you, by God, that you do not torment me. For he said to him, Come out of the man, unclean spirit. Then he asked him, What is your name? And he answered, saying, My name is Legion, for we are many. Also he begged him earnestly that he would not send them out of the country. Now a large herd of swine was feeding there near the mountains. So all the demons begged him, saying, Send us to the swine that we may enter them. And at once Jesus gave them permission. Then the unclean spirits went out and entered the swine. There were about two thousand. And the herd ran violently down the steep place into the sea and drowned in the sea. So those who fed the swine fled, and they told it in the city and in the country, and they went out to see what it was that had happened. Then they came to Jesus and saw the one who had been demon-possessed and had the legion sitting and clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who saw it told them how it happened to him who had been demon-possessed and about the swine. Then they began to plead with him to depart from their region. And when he got into the boat, 
He, who had been demon-possessed, begged him that he might be with him. However, Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends, and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you, and how he has had compassion on you. And he departed, and began to proclaim in Decapolis all that Jesus had done for him, and all marveled. And Luke chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. Now it came to pass afterward that he went through every city and village, preaching and bringing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him. And certain women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, out of whom had come seven demons. Jesus did not release John the Baptist from Herod's prison. But... He did release those who were bound by the chains of sinful lives and delivered them from the heavy burden of guilt and eternal condemnation. Question. What great promise is found in the following verses? John 8, verses 34 to 36. Jesus answered them, Most assuredly I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. The use of the word indeed in verse 36 shows that there is also a false kind of freedom, a pseudo-freedom that actually shackles human beings to further disobedience to God. Jesus' hearers trusted in their ancestry of Abraham as their hope for freedom. We run the same risk. The enemy wants us to rely upon anything, for instance, our doctrinal knowledge, our personal godliness, or our record of service for God, anything except Christ for our salvation. But none of these, however important they may be, has the power to free us from sin and its condemnation. The only true liberator is the Son, who was never enslaved by sin. Jesus delighted in forgiving sins. When four men brought a paralyzed man to him, he knew that this man was sick as a result of his dissolute living, but he also knew that the man had repented. In the pleading eyes of this man, the Lord saw the longing of his heart for forgiveness and his faith in Jesus as his only helper. Tenderly, Jesus said to him in Mark 2 verse 5, Son, your sins are forgiven you. Those were the sweetest words this man ever heard. The load of despair disappeared from his mind, and the peace of forgiveness filled his spirit. In Christ he found spiritual and physical healing. At a Pharisee's house, a sinful woman washed Jesus' feet with her tears and anointed them with perfume. In Luke 7, perceiving the Pharisee's disapproval, Jesus explained to him that her sins which are many, are forgiven. Then he said to her, Your sins are forgiven, in verse 48. Your sins are forgiven? Why are these the best words any of us will ever hear? Thursday, July 24. Christ gives us eternal life. 
Because of our sins, we deserve to die. But Christ took our place on the cross and paid the death penalty that otherwise rested on us. He, being innocent, took on our guilt and received our punishment so that we, being sinful, could be declared innocent. Through him, instead of perishing, we receive eternal life. John 3.15 makes this amazing promise to us. It says that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life, or eternal life, a promise repeated at the end of John 3.16. Some think that even after accepting Christ as Saviour, the promise of everlasting life will be real only after his second coming. However, the promise of salvation is expressed in the present tense, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, John 3.36. Whoever believes in Christ has everlasting life now and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life, John 5.24. Thus, even if we die and sleep in the grave, this temporary rest doesn't take away from the reality of eternal life. When Jesus becomes our saviour, our life acquires a whole new meaning, and we can enjoy a richer and fuller existence. I have come, stated Jesus, that they may have life, and that they may have it more abundantly. John 10.10 Instead of transitory worldly pleasures, which fill us up without really satisfying us, He offers us a life lived in a completely different way, full of inexhaustible satisfaction in Him. This new abundant life includes our whole being. Jesus performed numerous miracles to restore the physical life of many people, but above all, He wanted to give them a renewed spiritual life, clean from sin, filled with faith in Him and the certainty of salvation. Question. What metaphor did Jesus use to express the results of accepting him? What does that mean in our practical daily living? Well, we'll go to John chapter 6, verse 35. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. And further on in that chapter, verses 47 to 51, most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If Anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. So to finish the day, meditate on the concept of eternal life. It is not only an imperishable existence, but above all a blessed, satisfying and happy life in loving communion with God in the new earth. Although we are still living in this world, how can we start to enjoy even partially what it means to have eternal life? Friday.
Friday, July 25. Looking upon the crucified Redeemer, we more fully comprehend the magnitude and meaning of the sacrifice made by the majesty of heaven, writes Ellen White in The Desire of Ages, page 661. The plan of salvation is glorified before us, and the thought of Calvary awakens living and sacred emotions in our hearts. Praise to God and the Lamb will be in our hearts and on our lips, for pride and self-worship cannot flourish in the soul that keeps fresh in memory the scenes of Calvary. He who beholds the Saviour's matchless love will be elevated in thought, purified in heart, transformed in character. He will go forth to be a light to the world, to reflect in some degree this mysterious love. The more we contemplate the cross of Christ, the more fully shall we adopt the language of the Apostle when he said, God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. Galatians 6.14 And that brings us to our five discussion questions for this week. 1. Salvation is a gift, which means that it's free. At the same time, does it not cost something? What does it cost to accept this gift? And why? Whatever that cost, is it more than worth it? 2. On Monday, we read texts showing that salvation is the result of God's initiative. He makes every effort to save us. Yet Jesus also said that we need to seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness in Matthew 6.33. His words, strive to enter through the narrow gate in Luke 13.24, imply that we need to seek our salvation. How do we explain this? 3. How does Christ's death on the cross reveal God's justice? How does it also reveal God's mercy? 4. If we could work our way to eternal life through our own efforts and good deeds, and even our own law-keeping, what would that say about the seriousness of sin? Instead, think about just how bad sin must be that only the death of Jesus could atone for it. And five, religious Jews see in the Sabbath a foretaste of what eternal life will be like. In what ways does that idea, eternal life, prefigured in the Sabbath, make good sense. Inside Story Our mission story this week is titled Sharing God's Dream. God sent Alan and Kelly Fowler a dream to minister among the Navajo people of northern Arizona in the United States. They went as volunteers, praying that God would use them to reach the people they loved. They ministered to the Navajos living on the reservation and in the nearby town of Page in any way they could. When we saw a need, we prayed for a way to fill it, Kelly said. The couple invited mission teams to help rebuild run-down hogans or houses, and supplied struggling families with coats, warm blankets and baskets of food. They invited medical personnel to spend their vacations, offering free medical care to those who couldn't afford it. And they held health classes to teach people how to prevent diseases such as diabetes and high blood pressure. There was much to do on the reservation, but God called them to serve in the city as well. 
Page is the hub of a thriving tourist area, but half the population is Native American, many of them living in poverty. The couple visited trailer parks and run-down homes, seeking to meet the needs of the people, and once the Navajo people realised that this couple really cared for them, they were willing to learn about God. Soon the couple had 70 people who wanted Bible studies. They organised evangelistic meetings in Page. Twelve Navajos were baptised following the meetings. But they had no church. The group met in the community centre that volunteers had built outside town, and they prayed for a church, a dream that seemed impossible to fulfil short of a miracle. Land was expensive and hard to find, and a church would take years to build. The North American Division offered to help the struggling work among the Navajo with part of a 13th Sabbath offering. Hope soared. Then, a Seventh-day Adventist visitor to town discovered an unused church building. No sign had been posted, but the church was for sale. Members prayed, negotiations continued, and the church, a parsonage, and a vacant lot were purchased within the amount allocated to that project by the 13th Sabbath offering. We saw the hand of God moving, the Fowlers said, and people around the world helped make God's dream a reality. Thanks to your 13th Sabbath offering, the Little Miracle Church was dedicated to God on a clear, cold day in December 2012. Thank you. Please keep praying for volunteers to continue answering God's call to work among the Navajo so they can learn that God loves them and wants to spend forever with them. Your reader this week has been Dr. Percy Harold. The lessons have been brought to you by the Sabbath School Department, Christian Services for the Blind and Hearing Impaired, and through the services of Adventist Media Network. Remember that God is always faithful. <laughs>